0: Thank you all for being here this morning. Let's practice today as a nourishment. Yeah. So really care for yourselves. I wanted to mention that um, the, uh, there, there's a Sashin happening also today at um, Ancestral Heart. And they're very aware of all of us sitting together. So I wanted for us to also be aware that you know, we're all our Sangha is sitting together today. And I want to begin by appreciating you being here, or I should maybe us, us being here, me too. Um, even those that I don't know, I, I know it is hard to make space in your life, in our lives. Um, and being here means there are people and responsibilities and pets and other other, you know, things we are called to that are that we're elevating this value of coming together in sangha and in practice today and um, and all those all those other beings are supporting us to be here and also we can offer our gratitude to them but also to ourselves you know we are um, in this in this you know, maybe unusual way. We are, uh, ho- we are participating and holding up the Buddha Dharma in the world by being here today. So thank you for uh, cherishing this treasure. Thank us. I want to start today with a, with a practice, actually. And um, I'm going to be a little bit discursive for a few minutes and then Actually, I'm going to record this because we might try to offer it um, for the for the folks who are in the practice period. <clears throat> but I wanted to begin today with a practice that we can do. It's actually just the beginning part of a practice. Um, are folks familiar with metta practice? This is something that. Is there anyone who's never heard of this? Okay. <laughs> Sorry to make you feel single. <laughs> Could um, you a little bit Oh yes, thank you. Yeah, keep reminding me, I will probably dwindle. Um, metta practice, uh, met, the Metta Sutta is, um, so I think some people argue maybe that the oldest religious writing in the world. It predates, possibly predates Buddhism, yeah, <laughs> you can tell me if I'm wrong here, please. Um, so it's a super old teaching uh, and it's, uh, these are cultivation practices of compassion, loving kindness. And um, yeah, in my experience in, in Soto Zen in the United States, which is a very particular, you know, I, I, it's very particular um, stream of Zen that I practice in, um, they hadn't traditionally been lifted up. But it's important to know like th- this teaching is old like Dogen would have known about it, for example. <laughs> um, and this, it's a, it's a practice of cultivation of heart opening and it's foundational to Buddhist practice. So, so we engage this practice. This is not like a, it's not a soft and like nicey nice thing. This is, a, this is an enactment of a foundational orientation in the world that allows us to come from a place of compassion. And it, and it also kind of, you know, from its historical roots and into our time works to um, counterbalance messages and cultural training that we have that makes it hard for us. You know, the obstacles in practicing the way, the karmic things that, and the cultural things that make it hard for us to come from a place of compassion, both for ourselves and for others. It is a a commitment to cultivating compassion is really our responsibility as bodhisattva practitioners. Um, And again, I want and I'm going to keep emphasizing for ourselves and for others. Because, um, you know, recently I I can't remember. I think it was a young person was like, "Well, what's Buddhism for?" I was like, it's to respond to the suffering of the world. This is what it's, I mean, you know, if, we, if we're gonna talk utilitarian, Buddhist, Buddhist practice is a, is a way of responding to suffering in this world of suffering and, um, and liberating us from suffering. And we, we do, one of the ways that we can, moment by moment, mm, like an insurance policy, toward liberation is to come from a place of compassion versus coming from a place of separation, delusion, hatred, greed, you know, confusion. <clears throat> so this is, this kind of cultivation is a gate into our practice engagement. And in my experience, um, and, and you can look into your own life and see how this works, you know, Please please look for yourself is that the limit of compassion we're able to offer to others is, is absolutely totally one-to-one correlated to the amount of compassion we offer ourselves. And that is, I'm making it, there's a dualism, I'm naming there of self and other, but working, you know, because we do see the world that way, um, how heart, how much we are heart open toward ourselves translates directly into how heart opened we are toward others. And so, you know, we are moved, <laughs> we are compelled by bodhisattva practice to really work on this. And these trainings, so metta practice is one of them. people um, have folks heard of Tonglen practice from the Tibetan tradition, is a similar kind of rigorous engagement around how do we cultivate compassion as human beings. They, uh, they share this root of over and over insisting you start with yourself. You start with yourself. Every time you engage this practice, every time you sit down to sue it, you start with yourself. And, um, and that's the piece that I want to bring today and kind of offer to us as an orientation, both in our day together and also in the, in the ongoing, in the practice period. Um, the tradition is that you, you start with yourself. Well, actually, you generate a sense, and we'll do this together just so you can feel it out. You generate a sense of like very, very genuine loving regard. And then you turn it toward yourself. Challenging for many of us. <laughs> Notice, you know, just keep an eye on like if it's agitating to try to do this. Um, one, one thing to keep an eye on is if, if it's like irritating or if some part of you is like, Ugh. <laughs> Watch for the eye roll internally, you know. Um, That, keep an eye on that part of our minds, it is cynicism, and it is like, it it serves the status quo, I think. It looks very rational. Yeah? Can you repeat, I didn't hear it serves? It serves the status quo. To be cynical, I think, keeps us locked in systems of dehumanization like capitalism like patriarchy like racism like white supremacy you know so these these systems are served by a cynical mind that dismisses things that are mystical transcendent heart opening vulnerable you know and so and you know i'm i i know we all have different acculturation i'm certain of that i'm going to guess that because we're just located in the United States right now, all of us are impacted by a, a social orientation that is very harsh, genuine, you know, most of the time dehumanizing, um, n- not a nourishing collective environment. If that, does that sound true? For, yeah. and, and I hope, and my prayer is, you know, that right right now in this room, some of us live within smaller microcultures that are more nourishing and that then that bzc is one of those you know i have my hope and and that's my aim and wish in this world and the, but the, but we all live with the burden of you know the the big systems not caring for human beings and then within that depending on where we are in all the different hierarchies you know racial and gendered and sexual orientation and wealth Education, all those different ones are privilege and not privilege, the weight and burdens are harder, you know, are, are weightier. Um, so, this practice of metta practice is, you know, is like a Davy to that, or David to the Goliath of, sorry, I went back to the 70s for a um, second <laughs> But, you know, is the David to the Goliath of, of a momentum that says, like, this human nature is uncaring and this is just how it is. People are people. Just hate each other. <laughs> difference. Everyone hates difference and whatever the stories are, that lift up and perpetuate the society that doesn't care. So, let's get in a comfortable position <laughs> where you can really um, where you feel, uh, yeah, just stable in your body. And what I would want to ask us to do is to. Um, this is hard, you know, but but think of someone for whom your well-being, and it doesn't matter if they're living or not, they don't even have to be real or not, actually, (laughs) think of someone for whom your well-being is really important. So someone, they might not be perfect in their love for you, but they cherish you, and they want the best for you. So call that person to mind, and then see if you can have a sense of their regard for you. And, and really attend to like how you feel that, where in your body you feel that. What does this feel like to think about? And if it's a complicated relationship for just for today, like leave the difficult parts aside, and just feel that current of love. They really want you to be happy and well. This doesn't even have to be human, actually. <laughs> so be expansive. And now, if you can call to mind someone for whom, just today, your heart opens with ease. Somebody that's easy and joyful for you to, to love. And again, doesn't have to be someone living. Doesn't have to be human. Remember this being is, though, uh, maybe it's uh, someone who's older, but you you know you think you could think of their little tiny baby self, something like this. You don't have to be in real time. Someone for whom, when you think of them, your heart opens with ease. And, and feel that it's a vulnerable feeling, so it's okay if it's uncomfortable. To love people in this world is, is very dangerous because we're in a world of suffering. So don't fight with yourself. If there's resistance, just notice it. But feel that, you know, the essential kernel of love, unconditioned, it doesn't have any conditions on it. And now, and this is the tricky part, Turn that sensation of loving regard toward yourself. If you have to, you can imagine somebody else feeling it. <laughs> Turn this loving regard toward yourself. And the foundational practice of metta practice every time we engage it is may I be well. May I be joyful, may I feel loved and supported, may I feel cherished, may I feel a deep sense of belonging and rightness and ease. Just abide here for a few breaths and attend to all that arises, including discomfort. then traditionally what we would do is take that and and share it out towards someone we love, towards someone we feel neutrally toward, towards someone that's challenging for us to love or be open-hearted toward. And then from there, outward, 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 like concentric circles. And if you engage this practice, I really recommend go outward as far as the heart can tolerate and pause and then turn and come back through as far out as you can, the many, many beings, closer, closer, the one who's challenging to open your heart to, the one who's neutral, the one who's easy, and then returning to you, may I be well, may I be at ease and joyful. And, and engage this as a practice as often as you can. I can, I can name for myself, it's, I, I'm uncomfortable there because it um, makes, I miss my mom who died a long time ago. And I can feel the anxiety, like, ooh, I, don't want to, I can't get that vulnerable, I'm supposed to be talking. <laughs> and I just want to name it, because. so that's like, for example, here's something that could come up. And I also trust you know, this place, this sangha. I, I'm like, it's okay, I can name that. And I can be in that vulnerability. So in this practice period, we wanted to talk about repose and bliss and engagement and liberation. And this, this expression, actually, I can confess, I used to find super irritating. Uh, I didn't really know that at first. I was just like, what? And then, but then I was like, oh, why did they use the word bliss? You know, it's a translation. And, uh, and, at the, and I lived many years, and at the time was living in California, and the word bliss just made me bristle. <laughs> Just on it just sounded, you know, not helpful is what it's, you know, it's like, ugh, like it's just it's too selfish, right? Like, follow my bliss. Um, and I think it's really, again, like, so this is part of what we wanted to offer was, yeah, so if someone says bliss, what happens for you? <laughs> and why? <laughs> um, and, and, and let's, and, and, um, and just be in equanimity in that exploration, Someone says, rest, what happens for you and why? Someone says, repose. It's not a common, in my experience, not a super commonly used word. I'm gonna go repose. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also wanna name that, you know, we, want, we wanted to bring this, and then it's tricky to bring these ideas, I, I, and I also, I'm really inspired by, there's a few people in the world who are inspire me deeply in this. The, the main one is, uh, an amazing bodhisattva named Trisha Hersey, who, or well, that's my, my experience of her, is as a bodhisattva, as a prophet, actually, if I had to use another word, who is um, the Knapp bishop of the Knapp ministry. Have folks heard of the Knapp, Knapp. ministry? So, um, Trisha Hersey is a black American woman who, um, I think she was a performance artist and then went to, my understanding is from listening to some interviews with her, went to divinity school. And then this practice arose from her time as this is a calling, uh, particularly for Black Americans, around rest and the reclamation of what was stolen. And and what's ama- what's so beautiful and inspiring is, um, you know, just listening to her now for a couple of years that that expanding that it's not just about naps. She recently I was hearing her talk about daydreaming about you know just, just existing and wandering in the mind and in the heart, that that too, was stolen when, when people's labor and bodies and effort were stolen. Um, and that has a very particular and it really important to name specific meaning for black Americans um, and that lineage of, of the impact of slavery. And so it's tricky because I like you know. That labor was stolen, so that like so then there's this amplified capacity for rest and leisure for white people. You know, they didn't have to do stuff because other people, yeah. You know, so now there's this like over and over, yeah, indulgence of spaciousness, and and like there's the legacy of that, you know. And in and in that intense tension, me as a white person bringing these teachings is something I want to care for. So to name that when we talk about rest, we have to include understandings of equity in that. And then, and then every, you know, there's, <laughs> there's not and many people hold the identity of being both black and white Americans, right? And, and so, it's so it's so complicated. And then whatever racial identity we all hold and the complexities of those. And then our other ones, you know. Um, and, and, <laughs> these teachings are so deep, I think. I do experience this person as a prophet for this country and this society leading and saying, it is time for all of us to look at how we've been dehumanized. Everyone's been dehumanized, even those who have been lifted up, and it's different how we've been dehumanized and the impacts and the costs of that are different. And how do we reclaim our humanity? The derailment of our humanity, or of our collective humanity, which has happened over centuries and centuries. Mm-hmm. Although, I, that's kind of neat. I guess I sub, I, I'm assuming that somewhere our humanity was intact, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which is kind of aspirational, and uh, I like it. Somewhere oh, along the way, though, we, there, and maybe not. You know, maybe we still have to get there together. But anyway, this happened collectively and in society and culturally and in relationship. This being convinced that, so for example, if we were raised in the United States and we were convinced, as I would say I was, that my worth is totally tied to my productivity. This is a kind of dehumanization. This is a a kind of wrongness, I would say. Human worth, so we can try this one on. Here's another experiment we can do. I am valuable because I exist. So I mean for each of us to do that, you know, you don't have to say it out loud. But like, can we try that on? I am valuable because I exist. No conditions. And then if we look at all the ways we, and and again, differently, we've been taught that we're valuable, that deviate from that, (laughs) that have conditions on it, that's the derailment. And that, for us to reclaim our humanity and to um, like come back into alignment of our wholeness, this too we have to do together, in relationship, in in society, in in our cu- in cultural meetings. So that's <laughs> that's our small little project (laughs) but really that's the project of liberation and yeah it sounds big and impossible but and it happens in every moment in the tiniest of moments you know And we have a thought, like like we have a thought and it's not even conscious and we bring it forward and it's like, oh, I'm so stupid or I'm so selfish or something like that, the self-diminishing thought. Now, what do we do with it? That, the answer to that is like, are we moving toward liberation or are we moving toward dehumanization? Are we moving toward life? You know, life, are we affirming life or are we affirming killing, cutting off of life, the diminishment of life? Yeah, the first precept of to not kill life is to not also to not diminish life to not make it smaller and less valuable when kosen talked last week I, I learned i mean I, I really appreciated his talk in so many ways and i loved this thing which i'd never heard before of a lot of my dharma siblings are into like etym- etymology like where do words come from feel like i've heard a lot of dharma talks where people are like the root of that word is And it's always so interesting. Maybe because, right, like we use these words and we don't know where they come from. And then we examine and it's like, oh, interesting. So he was talking about exhaustion, the root of exhaustion being the ex, like casting out of the host, the spirit or the life force being cast out. And I was like, oh, that's so descriptive of what exhaustion feels like, right? Like my life force is cast out. And when he said that, I had this, question arise of like, so then for us in sangha, can we be asking over and over again, what invites it back in? How do we bring the host, the life force, the spirit back into the body? What activities? And this is going to be specific for each of us. You know? What, um, yeah like what setting do we have to make in our being that Invites life force back in. Um, and, and so that and so when we're talking about like rest and repose and, and even bliss and joy and play, um, can we get really expansive about what we mean by that? So for for each of us, I was talking with someone recently and I was realizing how true this was for me and how I can see it in others too, in our sangha actually, that you know, there's this huge depletion from the pandemic and all that that was, such an immense... I, some part of me actually, I feel, it's like I said, my mom died a long time ago and I sometimes I'm like, oh, she never got to see this and, and I feel sorry in a way, like I actually feel grateful to be alive in this time and be watching something where there was this collective Impact, you know, I've never seen anything that shared, you know Like so much so that it like cleared our skies, you know, and cleared the air like oh my god What an amazing thing, but also like what a terrible thing, you know, and 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 also like as a parent watching younger people like people are we've all been so impacted so there's this great depletion of all the impacts from this and everything like and everything that was already there, you know. Um, and how I, I feel like we're in a, we're in the recalibration together. Like, please let's be super, super deliberate about each step we take forward, not back towards some toward the normal. The normal sucked. <laughs> it really did. you know, like what was normal in this culture? You know, which again is a myriad thing, but still the, the predominant thing was we can it is killing us. We can no longer do this. So so now as we recalibrate into society together, let us do this carefully, you know. And with and with and slowly. And let us like you know, one of the things Well, I don't, I want to say this because if I'm certain people in here have lost people they love to COVID, you know, it was not singularly anything, you know. So tragedy is in there. It did show us all though that we could stop and like really stop for a while. And and, um, can we receive that teaching that's also in there along with the tragedy? So what does like stopping mean? And, and like, how is that rest? How is there rest there? You know, like these images of like animals coming into cities, it's <laughs> <That's> so great. <sighs> it was like epic. Um, so Trisha Hersey, uh, uh, I saw a post that she put on Instagram and it, um, and it said, I judge my success by how many naps I take during a week and how many healthy boundaries I create and uphold, this is my wealth. I was like, "Ah, amen. (laughs) Um, But also naming healthy boundaries as a kind of rest or kind of nourishment. It's my wealth. And then in the comment section, she was replying to people that were responding to that and she said, you will have to think differently. A mind change is necessary for the resistance And I think that also keeps ringing in me. We are gonna have to change how we think about ourselves, how we orient toward ourselves so that we can help change how we orient collectively. And and I think a key part of this, and this is where, and I think Zen, I really love Zen. it's like, I need a T-shirt that says, I heart Zen. Um, I really do. I really feel my, my, my lived experience is that, you know, and I, whatever, I've spent a lot of my time in the Zen world in my adult life, so I guess I don't have to, a lot of things to compare it to. Although I do. I've, like, experienced other things. You know, I've, I've done graduate work in psychology, right, so I, I like psychology, but I love Zen because I feel like Zen practice supports us um, in every way to first of all to every moment recommit which is required. And then also to change. Like Zen practice supports us to change and be and transform. And to do this internally and collectively, externally with one another. It also so, and, and the foundation, and this was nice for me that I had already written my notes, but this came up with a couple of people in Dokesan this morning of the foundational practice of attuning to our body and our posture in zazen is not separate from like total liberation. So it might seem like if you go to zazen instruction and they're like, do like this and go like this. (laughs) No, this isn't about this. Oh, I shouldn't say, this is about the body, but attuning to the body and aligning the body and redoing that every moment and recommitting to that every day when we practice zazen is a teaching for the body, mind, being. About what? About what's foundational? Please, you know, it's, it's a request. Please notice your living body. Notice what's here. Notice your your posture in and in every sense of that word. What posture are you in? In your heart. You know? What posture are you, what alignment are you in, in your mind, in your heart, in your guts? You know? And I, and hearing Kosen's talk yesterday, uh, last week was, I just felt like, oh, that's where I wanted to build from there of like, so he had this, I really love this, this um, the morality, the moral um, imp- implications and also the moral request of resting. That if we really want to be of benefit in this world, we have to care for ourselves and, and be diligent, have healthy boundaries and keep them. <laughs> and, um, and have, and daydream. And, <clears throat> and try on the idea, I am valuable simply because I exist without conditions. And that, um, so what I was feeling when he was talking was so there's this moral imperative and we can, um, and if we feel confused about that, we can feel into our somatic bodily experience and let our guts tell us what's the right thing to do. Um, I think another thing we have been deeply um, the, another thing that's been stolen or, or and taken and cut off from many human beings in in a, to say like contemporary united states is a de- is a connection to our body wisdom yeah when i look into my conditioning or my, my relationship to my body it really is like it's just an instrument to get stuff done don't worry about it from there (laughs) you know like keep it in shape enough that you can continue to move at this fast pace Um, but there was very very little training for myself anyway around like well how does it feel (laughs) what do you know here like in your belly nobody ever asked me what do you know in your belly when i was developing as a human being if you know small people, maybe ask them, <laughs> let's help reconnect that, you know, reassociate versus the, the imperative to disassociate. Someone recently told me, uh, this person was a body worker, and they were saying that when you have adrenaline, you, um, you can't actually notice that you're tired. And if we're moving at what would just be considered a, nor- a common, a normal pace in the United States, we, we are working with a fair amount of adrenaline, pretty. Somatic people, please tell me, does this sound right? That there's like, and, and we need a fair amount of anxiety to move us through the day, I think that's true. And it's like, but have you ever had that experience where you lay down or you sit down and you're suddenly like, whoa, I'm tired, but you had no idea the second before? Because, the, because we've been trained to not notice. Um, So so just wanting to invite everyone to look at the messages we received around our body, around being spacious with ourselves, around rest, around work, you know, there's a lot there. (laughs) Work alone, around responsibility, being grown up, you know how, uh, so for those who parent and have children that are older than, or are through or into adolescence, there's, or, or you know, we probably all had this experience as adolescents if we are not parenting of, you know when you, um, you can attune to exactly what would be like the most hurtful thing to say to your parents. <laughs> 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 it's good. It's like comes with the hormones. And, <laughs> and you may or may not say it depending on who you are in relation to your parents, but um, one of the th- one thing my daughter would say in her early adolescence is like you're so childish <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, kaya, if you ever hear this <laughs> but it was it was like, ooh, you know it, because because I am playful and I am silly and goofy and and that actually comes from my Zen train like or, or some capacity for that actually i can see now like this comes from practice (laughs) and maybe also just my nature and also like you know I was loved enough to feel like it was okay to be goofy and playful Um, but it was you know she was trying to interrupt you know because she was a she was attuned to an idea that an adult doesn't act that way and she was like "Eh, I'm gonna tether you back to the societal expectation mom (laughs) Like, stop embarrassing me in the parking lot, (laughs) which is fair enough, you know. Um, I do have to remember sometimes, like, it's hard to be a teenager. (laughs) You don't don't really want your mom to be singing. (laughs) But I think for each of us, like, look at, you know, have a look. Another one that came across my mind the other day was this expression, I'll rest when I'm dead. (laughs) why and then actually I I looked at that one and I looked at why and then I could feel and and then this gets you know very tender very quickly I can feel the fear that I have inherited from generations of people my grandparents lived on farms or they were fisher people right like if I couldn't labor with my body my life was threatened and I have inherited that fear, you know? And so, and so I'll rest when I'm dead <laughs> is an expression that I've heard throughout my life, you know? But what do I do with this inheritance? Um, and, and that is, that's a question I ask for myself in Bodhisattva practice, both for me and for them and for the people that came before me who couldn't ask that question. There was not the supports were not there to ask that question. They were simply like, go, <laughs> do. You know. And then I also could see in, in my childhood, I grew up in Massachusetts where when I was a child, there were blue laws. I don't know why they call them blue. Stores were closed on Sunday. So this was, you know, a not so nice or not so helpful conflation of Christianity and the state, which is, not helpful and alienating for many but there but I also was like oh but there was this thing that on Sunday you couldn't go shopping and you couldn't buy alcohol people had to go to New Hampshire for that (laughs) 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 and that was like a thing like I knew that people drove to New Hampshire if they wanted to buy alcohol on Sunday like what a weird and and uh, and you and this is where you would borrow sugar from your neighbor do you know do people have this like I was like oh yeah that's right because if because if you didn't have sugar you couldn't go to the supermarket they weren't open and I was like, hey, there's a little, you know, so it's, it's the Sabbath. So it's Christian or, and Jewish. And then there are people in my life who practice Shabbat and really have many, you know, maybe some of you here do. Very, and one of my dear friends is Orthodox. So like very specific practices, you know, around like they tear the toilet paper the day before. And, but can we also like reclaim those? There was an idea of rest. It was earned... So, like, biblically speaking, God, lay, you know, made a universe for six days and then took a day off. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's in me, too. That uh, Rest is earned, has to be earned, has to be earned. Yeah. And can I play with that at all? Could I rest without qualifying? I, I feel really uneasy saying it, so, I, you know, it's something for me to work with. I only liked resting when I had done something vigorous to get there. I still do it. Like, I've got some work to do. I'm actually hungry. Now I'm hungry. But lunch isn't happening until I get these four things done. This is like, do, is this training familiar to any you? <laughs> I recommended it recently to my son. <laughs> 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 I was like, you know what? What can it be? I was like, yeah, you want to do this fun thing, but get those four things done first, and then do that. Like I just did it. I passed on. I'm like here you go. Here's all of our societal acculturation. You're welcome. But you know, and you know, I have to help him be a functional person. Yeah. So so let's just, but let's just be together in in this exploration, and may it not be all just like negative I'm uh, sorry I've been somewhat negative about my inheritances, but You know what in there is supportive? What what were the practices? You know people were creative my grandfather very so my grandfather is like if you think of New England He is like an embodiment of a white thin he grew up in, in Maine man very quiet very withdrawn uh, Doesn't do a lot of emotional expression he had, he, he loved looking at, um, he, he would build his own telescopes. He was an engineer, but, but he did this as a hobby. He wrote a book about it even. In his, in the basement, he had like this little place that was his. And he, I only in my adult life, I was like, wait a second. Pops did this. He made this he this craft project where he made a model of all of the uh, planets. And he drew, and he painted the sun on the wall, not to scale, <laughs> but a big sun the planets and he would go hang out there you know so can you find things like that in your family in your history or just in the people who nurtured you where they weren't being explicit about it maybe but but there was um, there was a hint that life required creativity and delight and wonder he, he even went like they didn't spend money they didn't have money but he went on a boat across the Atlantic to Northern Africa for stargazers, because when you get out in the middle of the Atlantic, you like, it's a really good view. Mm-hmm. This super stoic guy <laughs> who was Spartan, you know, did that for himself. And I can kind of like pull that in and be like, okay, well, what does that teach me? Along with all the other stuff. Sorry, Pops was not even in the notes. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm, I'm glad he's here. <laughs> I'm just going to picture him like sitting there on a cushion, being like, how did you get here? <laughs> it's not what we expected. And I also want to name something that, that Akosa named, that to challenge, to, to, chal- to, to examine, but then also to bring to consciousness and maybe even to challenge some of the teachings we've received around around our worth and around rest and around engagement is hard. There's, there's like, you know, like I can see in my family, there's momentum. There was great fear. There was a lot of uh, desire to keep people in specific patterns of behavior. So, so be gentle with ourselves. Let's be gentle with ourselves when we look at this, like not to undo it all at once, but just to just softly be like, well, what's here? And if there's pain and discomfort or if there's cynicism, you know, if there's a mind that's like, ugh, this is just just for the rich people or whatever. Just breathe into that. Being tender with cynicism is challenging, but let's do or let's support each other in doing that. And let's affirm the life that's there and honor that pain, though, that arises and the discomfort. And let's collectively generate a willingness to liberate all of this together. Um, I just want to leave us with a koan, and I'm not even going to get into it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I hope that's okay and not frustrating. But I was reading it yesterday, and it was just like singing in my heart, and I... Uh, maybe maybe, the, maybe when I talk later in the fall, I'll try to talk about it because I just want to spend time with it. But I just wanted to offer it. And I also wanted to offer this koan um, in this way as uh, this is a way to engage with koans, which is like don't get discursive. Let it be poetry. Let it just like drift through you and see what happens. You know, there's, there are other ways of engaging. You can get all into like what do they mean? And I'm going to define a couple of the terms in it. So, I'm going to uphold that <laughs> discursive thing. Um, this is uh, the third case of the Blue Cliff record. Master Ma is unwell. Master Ma is actually dying, probably, in the story. And he, the terms that are used that are good to know are sun face Buddha and moon face Buddha. And a sun face Buddha it refers to a Buddha that lives for like, so that has a lifespan that is like kalpas and kalpas, so like beyond our conception of time, even. So a super enduring Buddha, timeless Buddha, and a moon faced Buddha is a Buddha that lives for one day. And then another term he uses, uh, another term in the commentary is um, the blue dragon cave, which Charlie Picorni says is the saha world. <laughs> so we'll go with that. This world of suffering. So the koan is, Master Ma was unwell. Ancestor Ma, who was a great teacher, by the way. Ancestor Ma was sick. The superintendent of the monastery asked him, how are you feeling these days? And the ancestor said, sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha. And then the verse that goes with this says, sun face buddha, moon-faced buddha, what kind of people were the ancient emperors? For 20 years I have struggled fiercely. How many times have I gone down to the blue dragon's cave for you? This distress is worth recounting. Clear-eyed bodhisattvas should not take it lightly. For 20 years, I've struggled fiercely. How many times have I gone down to the blue dragon's cave for you? This distress is worth recounting. This distress is worth noticing and honoring. Clear-eyed bodhisattvas should not take it lightly.